Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here's what we're not going to do. I'm not going to ask Glenn Hubbard dumb questions about being on the short list of the Fed. He's known me for too long to know I'm not going to ask snide little questions. But we will address the periphery of monetary policy as we can with the extinguished dean of the Columbia Business School, where he is Carson Professor of Finance. Glenn Hubbard, what I know is Eric Johnson's course at Columbia Business School, B8619-001, Behavioral Economics and Decision-Making, will be a different course as you move forward. And, you know, you, you've got them now in 2017 as well. Where does Richard Thaler fit in to Hubbard Economics? Well, Thaler is a fabulous choice for a Nobel as a bridge between psychology and economics. In fact, my freshman textbook is long-featured behavioral economics. I think it's central even at the basics. I have colleagues like Eric Johnson, who you mentioned, but also Steve Zeldes, who work to bring behavioral economics into the practice of business with the MBA students. I think this is a great Nobel for the profession. You know that the certitude of the media in the Fed parlor game is just that, an amateur certitude. Megden Desai of LSE writes about hubris, about a disequilibrium state. How do any chairs, whether Chair Yellen, Chairman Bernanke, how do they fold behavioral economics into the crystal ball gazing that is so juvenile? Well, I think it's a really important question, Tom. You know, it's going back to the financial crisis. I think ignoring behavioral factors led the Fed astray and many economists astray. I think the key right now for the Fed is to ask the question, What's normal? What does that mean? How do basic economic factors and behavioral factors shape that? You've written about the need to find somebody to run the Fed who can, quote, maintain uh, and explain. You've said that uh, personnel uh, is policy. I wonder how much a, a person, an individual, can shape or reshape the Fed and how much time that takes to do. Well, no one person, of course, is going to completely remake the Fed, but the chair is a very important role. He or she will set a tone. I think the idea of maintain and explain is you ought to be able to articulate a framework for monetary policy and the lender of last resort and explain when you deviate. If the chair sets that tone, I think the board will, too. The goal, I think, for President Trump is to appoint an entire Federal Reserve Board, essentially, that could carry something like that out. Do you feel satisfied that he's well on the way to doing that? Our colleague Gina Smilik writing a great piece last week for Bloomberg Markets Magazine. And when she looked at this imbalance as it stands right now, you've got a board that has a lot of regional presidents and, and fewer Fed governors. Um, how, how problematic is it to your mind that we have that imbalance at this point? And, and are you satisfied we're going to see that uh, put into some equilibrium here in these next few months? I'm confident we'll see that equilibrium. We've already seen very good choices like Randy Quarles to be the vice chair of the Fed for financial supervision. Obviously, President Trump will make a decision about chair. There's also a vice chair, other governors. I think the team is very focused on that, and it should be. The thought this weekend, which I'm sure will be discussed at the Columbia Business School, Dean Hubbard, is the idea that if you cut corporate taxes, there's almost a direct extrapolation over to economic growth. Do you buy it? 
I do. I, I think the bigger story to tell uh, economically and perhaps politically is the link to wages. You know, when I was a student many years ago, the view was the burden of the corporate tax was borne by owners of capital. Economists today, myself included, believe that a lot of that's actually borne by labor. And the reason is that the corporate tax depresses investment and productivity. So, yes, there are growth effects and wage effects, and that's where the debate ought to be. And the debate across Democrat and Republican politics is about the diffusion of technology across the models we learned or with our humility, the models that we're living in right now. How do you adjust Hubbard economics given this huge new impulse of technology we're living? Well, I think corporate tax reform will help with that, too. It will make sure that more of those gains get shared in productivity and wages with workers. I think the questions you're asking about growth, about technology, that's how we ought to be talking about tax reform. And for me, the corporate piece of tax reform is almost a no-brainer. I turn to a, a paper that you published this summer, July 18th, with uh, John Taylor, Kevin Warshin, and John Cogan here oh, on the. Uh, that's just <laughs> Pro- too many. Proving that you all can work together. I'll say, anyways. Hubbard will never <laughs> come back on again. <laughs> but the title, uh, The Prospects for Higher Economic Growth. And yep. in that paper, you four stress that uh, it's important to emphasize that tax reform and spending reductions go hand uh, in hand. From what you've seen from the Big Six, this nine page uh, document, do you think they've tackled spending reductions enough? And are you confident here going forward we're going to see lawmakers do that as they uh, put some meat on? the bones here of this nine-page outline. I think it's highly likely that they'll be tackling that, probably not on the spending side, but more on revenue neutrality. The budget resolution almost guarantees that, and many conservatives in the House won't vote for a budget buster. The bigger point that um, the Johns and Kevin and I were making is that in the long run, if we want a better tax system, we have to get the entitlement state in line. And sadly, I don't see any effort there. The joke is, Glenn Hubbard, without getting you in trouble with uh, the Fed, is the idea of low-rate Janet. And we can certainly say in the sense of the president, low-rate Donald, is a rules-based architecture, all of the distinguished gentlemen from Stanford. Is that a solution for the political pressure of a low-rate model? I don't think so. Uh, First of all, it wouldn't give you the answer of low rates probably at the moment. The bigger reason is that we don't really know what the equilibrium interest rate is, yep. you know, i.e. the intercept in the rule that you mentioned. I think what's more important is for the Fed to articulate the way it thinks about monetary policy, what are the goals, and to explain the deviations. Yep. And that's where I fault the Fed. It's, it's in its ad hocness. We go to Cartesian Monday with Glenn Hubbard. Okay, the intercept <laughs> is clipping at the y-axis, and out on the right side of the equation is the unknown, is that epsilon, which is of such challenge. Thaler would probably say, Richard Thaler would probably say, we have certitude in where we describe the intercept or the slope. How do you balance that in today's really interesting uh, economy with completely fiction uh, interest rates. Well, I mean, let me get more specific. The Fed's models, the Federal Reserve Board U.S. model framework that it uses, I don't think capture economic reality, uh, let alone the psychological factors that uh, Professor Thaler mentions. So I think there's need for more diversity in economic thinking uh, inside the Fed uh, and a real wake-up call to models, and the financial crisis alone should have suggested that. I think, David, with that question, we just minted Chairman Hubbard. (laughs) I can just... (laughs) 
I think it worked. Try, Get one more question very hard. before he hangs up on us never again. On the subject of research, what did you hear from Janet Yellen a couple of weeks back in Cleveland when she spoke at the NABE conference? She talked about inflation modeling and forecasting. Uh, did, did it stand out to you as a, a mea culpa, a, 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 a recognition that there are flaws with the modeling? What did you hear from the chair a couple of weeks back? Well, I think the bottom line is the chair feels that we have a series of transitory factors, one-offs, that you will, that have held inflation down. And I actually agree with that. That's different, though, from the view of whether we're modeling inflation well, and I don't think we are. It is certainly a very big bet. If you think that there's structural factors holding inflation down, then the whole framework is in question. But on the bottom line, I would agree with yeah. the chair. Glenn, Terrific sport to come on with us. Many others have said no. We greatly appreciate it. (laughs) Dina Hubbard is a Carson Professor of Finance and Economics, Columbia Business School, and just uh, just for now, wonderful for now. Well, just (laughs) wonderful to have him. I tell you, eighty-four other people would have said, "No, we can't do that." Glenn Hubbard uh, joining us on our phone lines. Eager to have with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios today, Andreas Dombret. He's a member of the executive board of the Deutsche Bundesbank here with us, as I said, uh, in New York before heading down to Washington for the uh, IMF World Bank meetings. Great to have you here with us. Let's start just with a 30,000-foot view of, of the regulatory landscape uh, in Europe at this point. The Basel talks uh, continue. What's the status of those negotiations? Yep. You know, we just met last week. Uh-huh. And um, that was on Wednesday and Thursday, um, regular meeting. And uh, a meeting went well. And we are getting closer and closer together, I must say. But Basel will only be concluded once the governors and heads of supervision agree and when the G20 endorse. So let's see what happens. But uh, um, you know, it, when you come together in a meeting like the one last week, you come together to agree and not to disagree. Uh-huh. So you, you, know, you don't fly across the world for no, uh, reason. For, for no <laughs> reason and to argue. Uh, we're, we're focused on timetables here uh, with regard to Europe. Certainly the timetable for Brexit is one of them. But uh, how about the timetable for this, uh, this iteration of, of Basel? Is it, is it proceeding to the pace you'd like to see it proceed? Now, and if we look back, we wanted to have Basel finished by the end of 2015. Yeah. Uh, now we're, we're in 2017. I must say we are still working on year end of 2015 data and numbers by the banks. So if we really go into 2018... I would be worried that we would be working on a mm-hmm. too old a uh, set of data. It's a little bit like uh, uh, going with a with a G- GPS and uh-huh. uh, you know sailing yeah. and with an old GPS. Needs an update. So we need so. We, you know if we want to conclude on this basis, I would believe that we would need to conclude this year. Um, it would be nice to have um, you know a conclusion during the German G20 presidency, mm. which ends if ends end of November of this year, but this is not a must. We right. have to have a good result rather than the German G20 presidency. I think the last time we spoke, I was incredibly rude because you were within hours or days of an ECB announcement and could <laughs> yes. basically say nothing. Yeah. We've got a little <laughs> yeah. more wiggle room now. Yes, I think our listeners across this nation and worldwide, our, our world audience, has somewhat of an idea of the Bank of England. They've got an idea of the Fed. They've got an idea of this, that, the other. And the Bundesbank is an enigma. It is is something we don't understand. Explain the day-to-day structure of the leadership of the German Central Bank. Uh, We are six in the leadership. Uh, Our president sits on the board of the ECB. So whilst in the past um, 
the board of the Bundesbank was crafting monetary policy for Germany whilst, whilst we still have the Deutsche Mark. Now we are participating through our president in the uh, decision-making mm -hmm. of the European Central Bank. So we are now have a smaller room than we had before, but for, for a much bigger uh, game if you want. How has it changed? I remember visiting with Otmar Issing in mm -hmm. a brand new Frankfurt, a brand new ECB. The tower wasn't, but actually uh, Professor Issing showed me the blueprints for the tower mm -hmm. when I was in the office a million years ago. How has the Bundesbank relationship with Frankfurt changed from the beginning to where we are now? Now let's don't forget that the ECB was uh, set up with the Bundesbank as a model. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the independence uh, of the Bundesbank was um, you know, taken to the ECB, et cetera, et cetera. When you give up your monetary policy, your direct influence on monetary policy, uh, of course, there you have somewhat of a shock, but you do this for the greater good of things. So I would think that in 9 out of 10 uh, or 19 out of 20 instances, uh, the Bundesbank and the ECB agree on the issues. In maybe in 20 out of 20 instances, we have the feeling that uh, we have the same judgment, but it really depends on how you react, how you implement, what do you do. And then, you know, the glass can be half, mm -hmm. half full or half empty. But it's not that we constantly disagree with the ECB. I sit on what is called the supervisory board of the ECB. So there's the governing council where mm -hmm. monetary policy is crafted. And then there's the board of, board of supervisors. There's a Chinese wall in between. And I sit uh, for Germany on that one. And we also... Um, um, very much agree, but we also argue. We are not living in a Soviet system where uh, where everybody has to agree all the time and everybody has to collect their heels. But it's only normal that you do um, that you do uh, discuss issues. But should there be ever will be a decision um, in the ECB, the Bundesbank will properly execute that decision. As we watch this uh, Brexit process unfold. Companies have made announcements they intend to move more workers to Germany and other places within Europe. How does that change your regulatory responsibilities? In other words, if you have an influx of more commerce or more personnel, how does that change the role that your bank is going to play? Uh, uh, first of all, let me say um, that I personally regret that this uh, Brexit referendum led to what it led and uh, that I could have lived perfectly with the system we as had it was, before. or as it is, yeah. as it was, yeah. and that, but that is, you know, we have to face, mm -hmm. we have to face um, uh, reality, uh, th which means that a hard Brexit is the scenario the banks are preparing for. It may not be a hard Brexit at the end, but as a scenario, that's the most uh, probable and most likely scenario. So, uh, if you prepare for that, which would mean that you would have no uh, free trade agreement, really at the end of this uh, two-year period, if that is happening, you know, many, many banks will have to shift part of their business into Europe, but which means that they will come to certain cities uh, on the continent. Does Brexit threaten Conrad Adenauer's Europe? No, not at all. Why? It is, it is, Brexit is a, um, it is a um, step which was taken, but it does not mean that, for example, um, Britain leaves the NATO, Britain leaves the G7, that Great Britain leaves the G20, it means they're leaving a common European Union, which in itself is a pretty problematic uh, issue, but it still means that um, we can work very closely together. Now, to answer your question, we will have inflows of uh, broker-dealers uh, into Europe, 
uh, also into Frankfurt, I must say, and we have never really supervised large broker-dealers. So there is going to be a challenge to the roles of the supervisors and how do we deal with broker-dealers, but we are confident that we can do that. This is not really a financial stability risk. This is coming with a two-year time horizon, so the market can really understand and anticipate what's happening. I just want to get your perspective on this moment in central banking or monetary policy. I go back to Centrip Portugal, where you had the leaders of many central banks there talking for uh, more communication, cooperation, uh, pick the word. Uh, and you know, we see here the U.S. trying to unwind QE, normalize the balance sheet. Where do things stand as you observe it from, from where you sit in Frankfurt? For where I sit, um, I think that the debate is um, how can we – best interpret the pretty strong economic numbers we are having across Europe, uh, the much better situation, a um, consumer price inflation, which is um, uh, at 1.5 percent, going towards our definition of price stability, a core inflation rate strengthening uh, with the highest consumer confidence we have had uh, for a long time. Um, Why are we doing better? Why Why is eurosclerosis drifting away? Yeah, because first of all, there's no deflationary scenario. If there ever was one, I can actually see. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, are, we are seeing growth now um, uh, in almost all member states of the euro area. We um, have really bottomed out and I- the economic environment is much better. And the political risk we have been debating half a year, Fair. a year ago, no longer is really um, there. Is it because the business practices which you studied at J.P. Morgan, at Rothschild, at Bank of America are becoming more Anglo-American? No, because the uh, situation uh, is so much better from an economic point of view. We still have a credit-based economy and not yet an Anglo-Saxon uh, um, uh, capital markets-based uh, economy in See how in he the did continent. that so diplomatically, David? <laughs> it's just well amazing done, how he <laughs> batted that right back over the net. So we're not there yet. <clears throat> we're not there yet. No, and, uh, and, and, and we are doing, we, we're still doing much better. So now the, from a monetary policy perspective, you really have to think through how, what do you make out of this um, stronger economy economy, uh, better numbers, uh, uh, more going towards uh, the definition of price stability. So my question would be, what uh, now the governing council, and I'm not a member of the governing council, mm-hmm. will have to debate how to react. Mm. Well, I think the goal would be to get Swiss 10-year yields under uh, above positive again. That would be a good start. This is Benedict. Can you do this every week? Can you come <laughs> into our studios on a weekly basis? That would be a good thing. From time to time, Andreas Tupper, thank you very much. Again, executive uh, member of the executive board of the Deutsche Bundesbank, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, to in have New York. Here. Yes, great to have you. You're heading to Washington as well later <clears throat> this week, I should mention, Tom. It's uh, a rumor. Well. I will be there. <laughs> I, it's a it's a rumor right now. I'll be there. No, we've got some wonderful interviews lined up at the IMF meetings. And now joining us, the laureate Robert Schiller of Yale University as he celebrates uh, the announcement of Richard Thaler uh, to a Nobel Prize. Thaler is, of course, of Chicago, out of Case Western and out of the University of Rochester. Bob Schiller, inform our audience as to the distinction of Thaler economics versus Schiller economics or Becker economics, or the others. What is distinctive about Richard Thaler? Well, he uh, has helped promote a revolution in economics, namely behavioral economics, that makes economics more a real world. And 
also that leads to public policies that can be tested and found to work. Uh, there, there has been a tendency to rely too much on abstract models of economic behavior, uh, as if everyone were paying attention and everyone were optimizing, right. but they're not. So we're coming back to reality. I know David Gurr wants to jump in here, but very quickly, if you go back to the Carnegie Rochester sessions of 1982, where you were there with Lars Peter Hansen, Jacob Frankel, and others, if you go back to the battle of 79, Common Tversky, the battle of Thaler, 1980, writing originally, the battle that you fought at 1982, describe to our listeners how the Rational Expectations crew, they hated you people. What was it like then? <laughs> yeah, that's strong word. Some of them probably did. Uh, although I have to say, academia does uh, come across as open-minded. There are they may uh, have hostile emotions. Uh, I, w- I once spoke to Eugene Fama, who is, you might call him my enemy, although we won the Nobel you Prize. Got that right. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not my enemy. He's a thorn in my side, and it's probably good. <laughs> but he once told me that he has refereed and accepted many important behavioral economics articles. Uh, so I, I think people uh, in academia are... Not all that bad, but they do get emotional, and that's just human nature. <laughs> Bob Schuler, let me ask you about uh, Richard Thaler, the, the public intellectual. We've we've seen him in the Big Short playing poker or blackjack or whatever it was alongside Selena Gomez. We've 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 heard him uh, lecture to popular audiences. He's written books that have been popularly consumed uh, as well. How much has he made a difference here in popularizing behavioral economics? Well, he has been enormously important. I I think. Uh, uh, it, as I say, it's a revolution. If you, if you were to summarize what important has happened in economics in the last 20 years uh, or so, I think behavioral economics would come number one. And to me, it's really inspirational to get back to reality, because we have just disrespected in economics other social sciences who've been quietly working away and coming up with new information about how people really behave. How could we have ignored that for so long? So to me, it's refreshing. Someone had to, had to call out the uh, fallacy of relying exclusively on rational, optimizing models. Finally, it's been done. And you know, uh, Dick Thaler was uh, president of the American Economic Association. He's, he, the profession has come around uh, to appreciate what can Donald, what, what yeah. can what can President Trump learn from Richard Thaler? Okay, well, you know, President Trump is, himself is a bit of student of psychology, but not such academic psychology. If you read his books, and I think they were not just totally co-authored, totally uh, ghost-written, he had some input into them. He is very aware of human psychology, uh, and. Uh, well, his art of the deal is based on it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think Donald Trump has a lot more he could learn from Dick Saylor still. Yeah. Professor Schiller, thank you so much. Honored to have you with us again. Robert Schiller of Yale University, of course, uh, uh, 2013 
Nobel Laureate and his colleague, uh, particularly with great work at NBER with Richard Thaler as well. Um, I, D- David, we've had a Thaler sighting. We got a wonderful note from an extremely beleaguered Richard Thaler. I believe it, up early for that today. news conference. And, yeah, and uh, we will have him later this week, which we, I think is probably better for our listeners. We've talked about saltwater and freshwater and brackish water. Is this a high water mark for behavioral economics, Tom? You mentioned yeah. oh, yeah, Eugene Fama, Bob Schiller. Yeah, it was widely presumed that uh, Robert Schiller would win an award, but this is a further uh, codification of, of behavioral economics into the canon. David Gurren, Tom Keenan, New York. This is Bloomberg. are blessed in that we have just had on the laureate Robert Schiller and Richard Thaler. Professor Thaler will join us later in the week. I got a lovely note from him this morning. He's beleaguered, as you can imagine, and we'd much rather do a more thoughtful interview with the laureate later this week. But now is the most important interview of the day. This is Randall Krosner. You know him as the governor of the Federal Reserve System. He is without question our premier financial economist, of his generation, and he has to work in the behavioral soup of the Fortress Becker every day at Chicago. Randy Krosner, what is Gary Becker? What is the legacy of the Becker years followed on to Richard Thaler? What does behavioral economics mean to your Chicago? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm delighted to be here, and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, uh, share the excitement uh, that um, uh, Chicago um, Booth School of Business has for uh, Thaler getting the prize. I mean, we have a pretty broad range of people. I mean, obviously, we had uh, Gary Becker, who unfortunately is no longer with us, who won the Nobel Prize just in 2013. Gene Fama, uh, the proponent of efficient markets, won the Nobel Prize. And Dick Thaler, uh, who now has a very different approach, uh, a behavioral economics approach that says we've got to really think about people as people. Think about their their foibles, uh, their flaws, and how they make decisions. And so he takes a very different approach mm-hmm. to financial markets and economics overall than they do. But they're all together. To take it back to when you were with Frank Knight in 1921, uh, <laughs> Professor, not that, Cro- old. <laughs> not that old. But to George Stigler and to take it back to Frank Knight, are our measurements of risk and uncertainty more uncertain now? because of Schiller and Thaler. When you guys are at the Fed trying to figure out what to do, do you do it with less certainty than we did years ago? Actually, I think um, uh, quite the opposite. It has been helpful in making sure that we have a broader perspective. I think, um, let's say, you know, Knight certainly introduced very important ideas, um, but I think um, people uh, working in behavioral economics have helped to make that a little bit more concrete. Well, what are some of those sources of that? You know, what, is it, what could it be from people's behavioral perspective that might be generating uncertainty or why things might not follow uh, a simple model that we would have had in the past? Uh, Randy Krasner, he was asked uh, at the press conference following the announcement of the award this morning about the impact of his work, what he hopes the impact would be or has been. And he said, uh, quote, it's the recognition that economic agents are human and that economic models have to incorporate that. When you look at the profession writ large, uh, outside of the narrow niche of, of behavioral economics, how well incorporated is this line of thinking now into to other veins of economic thought? So I think... It is much more so than it used to be. So just in the 27 years that I've been at, uh, at Chicago, so roughly half of my life, I've seen an amazing transformation occur. Um, very few people 
when I first got here, were really focused on uh, these these broader issues. Uh, and I would say now that a very high fraction of the uh, the younger people that we have hired over the last uh, five to ten years, whether it's in economics, finance, or other areas of the school, are focused on these kind of broader issues of trying to introduce humanity into um, into economics and finding a lot of very rich empirical um, uh, uh, veins to uh, to tap. Uh, for example, uh, Thaler has talked a lot about uh, mental accounting, that um, the way you treat a dollar in your pocket may be different than the way you treat a dollar in your um, uh, in your in your bank or in your savings account. And um, economists traditionally said, if you have a dollar, doesn't matter where it is, it's a dollar. Right. Make the same decisions associated with it. He said, you know, just think about it. If there's a dollar in your pocket and you want something, you may go spend that dollar if that, uh, that opportunity is right in front of you. If you had to go down to the bank, withdraw that dollar, you may say, right. hmm, not so sure about that. To take the endowment effect further, does the central bank, does any given central bank, and let's pick on the Americans, do they have an endowment effect of the policies they have now? Are they so wedded to their policies that they have to live them because they're endowed to them? So um, I think it's slightly different than the endowment effect, but it is another mental effect that there's sort of a framing effect that comes in if you frame the world through a particular lens or particular set of uh, set of questions and see it that way. And so if you see the world as now subject to a lot of fragility, uh, if you've experienced the financial crisis, you've worked hard to try to fight the, the financial crisis, you may be more reluctant than someone from the outside to say, hey, Things have normalized. Now let's move back to um, uh, to uh, our normal situation quickly. You may say, "Gosh, I've got the scars of the financial crisis on me. I'm going to move much more slowly, precisely because I've lived through it." And I think that's some of what uh, we're seeing with central banks that they, you know they're very leery of declaring victory because they've they've been in the trenches and they don't want to lose uh, the uh, the benefits that they have. They feel that they have uh, have gotten over the last few years by undertaking quantitative easing, zero interest rate policies, et cetera. Uh, Randy, let's personalize this if we could. Let's go to South Woodlawn Avenue, and, and I wonder if you can think <laughs> of a time when you were having a cup of coffee with Professor Thaler or, or just chatting with him in the halls of the, the Booth School, uh, when he said something that made you change or think about uh, what you'd thought about in the past. And so uh, he, he has been um, a very important intellectual force of, um, of really – I think opening people up to be uh, uh, be much broader in the way they they approach things. Mm. For example, uh, a lot of the work that he's done on uh, let's say uh, mutual funds, where you have these uh, closed-end mutual funds, which uh, uh, means that it's not like an exchange-traded fund; it's closed in the amount of um, uh, assets that uh, that are owned. But sometimes that can trade above or below the value of the underlying assets, the so-called net asset value. And I remember having a discussion with him about that. That was something that had always puzzled me uh, when I was in, in graduate school. But he and co-authors and students have um, really kind of fleshed that out, tried to understand that much better to, to help us to get uh, uh, measures of um, uh, exuberance or pessimism. So it gets back to what Tom was talking about before. Here's a an example of where, rather than just sort of dismissing it as, well, that just doesn't make any sense, or you know, there must be some sort of um, uh, transaction cost that's in there, Dick took a different approach and said, well, 
it's um, suggestive of either enthusiasm or pessimism. And some people have used that as a way of yeah. saying, well, this can give us broader market measures of pessimism or enthusiasm. Yeah. Generous of you to Absolutely, rip yeah. up your morning to come on with us, Randy Krosner of the Booth School of Chicago, in celebration of his colleague, uh, Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler winning the Nobel uh, Prize. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.